Hello, this is Michael Schatz, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology in Practice. It is my pleasure to present to you the highlights of our June 2022 issue. The theme of this issue is chronic rhinosinusitis, and we thank editorial board members Joachim Malal and Matthew Rank for serving as coordinators for this theme. The outstanding theme review articles in this issue cover the epidemiology of chronic rhinosinusitis, the assessment of chronic rhinosinusitis, general management of chronic rhinosinusitis as presented in two recent international guidelines, the interrelationships between chronic rhinosinusitis and COVID-19, various aspects of biological treatment of chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps, and a perspective on the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats of chronic rhinosinusitis management in 2022. Finally, an insightful theme editorial is contributed by theme coordinators Joachim Malal and Matthew Rank that does a terrific job of summarizing and contextualizing these theme review articles. In addition to the theme review articles, the June 2022 issue also contains an important American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology workgroup report on pulmonary procedures during the COVID-19 pandemic, and notable review articles on the subjects of vaccinations in children and adolescents treated with biologic drugs, and targeting downstream type 2 cytokines or upstream epithelial alarmins for severe asthma. Now let me present the highlights of the original articles in this issue, which are on the subjects of rhinosinusitis, anaphylaxis, asthma, cough, eosinophilic disorders, food allergy, immunodeficiency, and immunotherapy. The first article is Risk of Chronic Rhinosinusitis with Nasal Polyps in Endotypes of Dermatophagoides Teronissimus Induced Rhinitis by DeMarchi et al. What is already known about this topic? The impact of local sensitization rhinitis, LAR, and dual allergic rhinitis, DAR, defined as the coexistence of systemic sensitization to pollen and local sensitization to dermatophagoides teronissimus, DP, on chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps is unknown. There are no studies on the prevalence and clinical significance of delayed hypersensitivity to era allergens as assessed by the atopy patch test in these emerging endotypes. What does this article add to our knowledge? Endotypes of allergic rhinitis induced by DP represent risk factors for developing chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps, and LAR and DAR present more risk than do systemic sensitization rhinitis. Progression towards chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps is often associated with the development of adult-onset asthma. Delayed hypersensitivity to DP is an independent predictive factor for the development of chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps. In LAR and DAR, the atopy patch test has high positive and negative predictive values 
for DP-induced localized nasal disease. How does this study impact current management guidelines? In patients with persistent or perennial rhinitis, sensitization to DP should be sought, even in the absence of classic IgE-mediated hypersensitivity tests or in the presence of systemic sensitization for pollen alone. Research and intervention strategies, for example, allergen immunotherapy, targeting local allergy to DP in LAR and DAR endotypes should be considered in an attempt to prevent the development of chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps and progression toward adult onset asthma. The next article is Dupilumab demonstrates rapid onset of response across three type 2 inflammatory diseases by Canonica et al. What is already known about this topic? Dupilumab has demonstrated improvements in clinical outcomes in patients with uncontrolled type 2 driven diseases such as atopic dermatitis, asthma, and chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps. What does this article add to our knowledge? Treatment with dupilumab provides rapid, within two weeks, clinically meaningful benefits after treatment initiation that are sustained for the duration of treatment in patients with moderate to severe atopic dermatitis, moderate to severe asthma, or severe chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps. How does this study impact current management guidelines? Many patients struggle with medication compliance, and clinicians have difficulties adhering to treatment guidelines. We speculate that from both the patient and care provider perspectives, achieving a clinically meaningful response within the first weeks of treatment may result in better adherence and strengthen the relationship between the clinician and the patient. The next article is Development and Validation of the Anaphylaxis Quality of Life Scale for Adults by Nib et al. What is already known about this topic? Anaphylaxis is potentially fatal and detrimentally impacts patients' quality of life, QOL. Currently, there are no validated scales to measure the impact of anaphylaxis on the QOL of adults. What does this article add to our knowledge? We present a reliable and valid scale, Anaphylaxis Quality of Life Scale for Adults, or AQOL Adults, to measure QOL in adults with anaphylaxis. Use of the scale will enable direct comparison of the impact of anaphylaxis across different types of allergens. How does this study impact current management guidelines? The AQOL adults can be used in clinics or research to measure the impact of anaphylaxis on adults, direct allergy management advice, and help evaluate formal interventions aimed at improving anaphylaxis management and QOL. The next article is Benralizumab effectiveness in severe asthma is independent of previous biologic use by Jackson et al. What is already known about this topic? In phase three trials, benralizumab treatment significantly reduced exacerbations and maintenance oral corticosteroid use 
in patients with severe eosinophilic asthma, SEA, most of whom had not previously received therapy with a biologic for SEA. What does this article add to our knowledge? In a real-world SEA population, benralizumab eliminated exacerbations and maintenance oral corticosteroid use and improved asthma control in many patients, regardless of previous biologic therapy, fractional exhaled nitric oxide concentration, or the presence of atopy. How does this study impact current management guidelines? Benralizumab is highly effective for patients with SEA, including those who have failed other biologic therapies and those with elevated fractional exhaled nitric oxide or atopy. The next article is Longitudinal Impact of Sputum Inflammatory Phenotypes on Small Airway Dysfunction and Disease Outcomes in Asthma by Abdo et al. What is already known about this topic? Airway inflammatory patterns indicate differences in clinical asthma features and phenotypes. What does this article add to our knowledge? In asthma, eosinophilic airway inflammation is the main driver of small airway dysfunction, SAD, and the subsequent poor asthma outcomes. The coexistence of airway neutrophilia aggravates the impact of eosinophilic airway inflammation on lung function and confers a severe mixed granulocytic asthma phenotype. Airway eosinophil rather than neutral count is the independent predictor of the longitudinal change in all lung function measures, even in patients who are being treated with inhaled or oral corticosteroids or anti-eosinophilic biologics. Persistent airway eosinophilia was associated with dynamic small airway changes, even in patients with stable forced expiratory volume in one second, FEV1. How does this study impact current management guidelines? In patients with asthma, SAD should prompt the investigation of airway eosinophilia, either directly or via surrogate markers, even in patients who are under eosinophil-targeting therapies. In future clinical trials that are investigating eosinophil-targeting therapies, the addition of small airway function markers to the routinely used FEV1 might be more appropriate for the evaluation of lung function. Further research elucidating the potential role of the eosinophil-neutrophil interaction in the pathophysiology of asthma is warranted. The next article is Clinical Characteristics of Irritant-Induced Occupational Asthma by Lanto et al. What is already known about this topic? A proportion of occupational asthma is induced by irritant agents, but the clinical picture of this asthma type is poorly known. What does this article add to our knowledge? Patients with irritant-induced asthma, IIA, use asthma medications extensively and have frequent asthma exacerbations six months after occupational asthma diagnosis. Their short-term asthma outcomes appear poorer than that of sensitizer-induced occupational asthma. How does this study impact current management guidelines? The patients with IIA should be carefully monitored after the occupational asthma diagnosis, 
and the poor outcomes highlight the need for preventative actions. The next article is as-needed use of short-acting beta-2 agonists alone versus as-needed use of short-acting beta-2 agonists plus inhaled corticosteroids in pediatric patients with mild intermittent step 1 asthma, a cost-effective analysis by Rodriguez-Martinez et al. What is already known about this topic? Step one of the stepwise approach for managing asthma in children five to 11 years old is challenging for various reasons, among them the fact that the initial therapy in step one is aimed only at symptoms, despite asthma being a disease with a highly variable activity level that is driven by chronic airway inflammation. What does this article add to our knowledge? In Colombia, a low- and middle-income country, compared with the use of albuterol alone, the use of beclomethazone dipropionate added to albuterol as needed for symptom relief is cost-effective in children 5 to 11 years old with mild intermittent step 1 asthma because it involves a higher probability of a lack of a requirement for prednisone for asthma exacerbation at lower total treatment costs. How does this study impact current management guidelines? The results of this study give support to the recommendations of the Global Initiative for Asthma Guidelines 2021 for the management of children 5 to 11 years old with mild intermittent asthma to allow the use of inhaled corticosteroids whenever short-acting beta-2 agonists is taken in combination or in separate inhalers as an efficient option. The next article is Transition to Virtual Asthma Care During the COVID-19 Pandemic, an Observational Study by Civitusa et al. What is already known about this topic? The COVID-19 pandemic led to a rapid and significant change from in-person care to virtual care. This change in the way care was delivered affected patient populations differently. Patients with asthma had a reduction in exacerbations during the pandemic. What does this article add to our knowledge? This article highlights how care for patients with asthma was delivered both virtually and in person, as well as where barriers to virtual care existed, and suggests that care could be delivered virtually without an adverse effect on asthma outcomes. How does this study impact current management guidelines? This article should give clinicians some confidence that asthma care can be delivered virtually, although it will require ongoing work to improve accessibility and acceptance while maintaining quality. The next article is an online weight loss intervention for people with obesity and poorly controlled asthma by Johnson et al. What is already known about this topic? Single center studies suggest in-person weight loss interventions might improve asthma control. However, whether a remote intervention might work at multiple sites and the amount of weight loss required are not known. What does this article add to our knowledge? A remote intervention can produce at least a 5% weight loss in a significant proportion of people with obesity and poorly controlled asthma, 
and this degree of weight loss is associated with improved asthma control. How does this study impact current management guidelines? Targeting a 5% weight loss might improve asthma control in people with obesity, and the intervention can be disseminated via an internet-based platform separate from the site of asthma care. The next article is Risk Factors for Persistent Chronic Cough During Consecutive Years, a Retrospective Database Analysis by Zeiger et al. What is already known about this topic? Chronic cough is a prevalent disorder with considerable disease burden and generally poor treatment options and efficacy. Although chronic cough often persists, risk factors for persistent chronic cough lasting for many years require study. What does this article add to our knowledge? The present retrospective administrative data study in a large managed care organization demonstrated several baseline risk factors for persistent chronic cough, including older age, female sex, specific respiratory comorbidities, hypertension, depression, potential cough complications, dispensed medication of various classes, and more specialist care. How does this study impact current management guidelines? Awareness of the risk factors for persistent chronic cough should aid clinicians in identifying, counseling, and improving management of such patients. The next article is Benralizumab completely depletes gastrointestinal tissue eosinophils and improves symptoms in eosinophilic gastrointestinal diseases by Kuang et al. What is already known about this topic? Reduction or normalization of gastrointestinal GI tissue eosinophilia with diet or corticosteroid therapy is associated with clinical remission in patients with eosinophilic GI disease. What does this article add to our knowledge? Although benralizumab dramatically depletes GI tissue eosinophils and improves symptoms in treatment refractory patients with hyper-eosinophilic syndrome and GI eosinophilia, clinical response over time is heterogeneous and may depend on the GI segment affected. How does this study impact current management guidelines? Benralizumab may be useful for the treatment of patients with hyper-eosinophilic syndrome and GI eosinophilia that is refractory to standard therapy. Larger studies are needed to confirm these findings. The next article is Clinical Features and Clinical Course of Food Protein-Induced Allergic Proctocolitis, 10-Year Experience of a Tertiary Medical Center by Senosak et al. What is already known about this topic? Food protein-induced allergic proctocolitis is a benign, non-IgE-mediated food allergy mostly seen in well-appearing breastfed infants. Tolerance to the responsible allergen often develops within the first year of life. What does this article add to our knowledge? Food protein-induced allergic proctocolitis appeared earlier in premature infants, but later in infants using formula. The risk of late tolerance in children presenting with diarrhea is remarkable. How does this study impact current management guidelines? 
Although food protein-induced allergic proctocolitis is a non-IgE-mediated food allergy, it is necessary to be prepared for IgE-mediated reactions in the course of the disease. The next article is Development of Food Allergy Data Dictionary Toward a Food Allergy Data Commons by Segal et al. What is already known about this topic? The terminology used to describe food allergy concepts and data elements is ambiguous and incomplete. What does this article add to our knowledge? This article highlights the limitations of current food allergy concept coverage by existing clinical terminologies and describes the development and face validation of the first generation of the food allergy data dictionary. How does this study impact current management guidelines? The Food Allergy Data Dictionary can help in limiting the variation in clinical practice by having defined critical food allergy concepts and data elements, and is a pivotal resource for designing structured data collection forms for food allergy clinical encounters. The next article is Response to Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2 Initial Series and Additional Dose Vaccine in Patients with Predominant Antibody Deficiency by Barmittler et al. What is already known about this topic? Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2, SARS-CoV-2, Infection in Patients with Predominant Antibody Deficiency is Associated with High Morbidity. However, understanding of the response to SARS-CoV-2 immunization in these patients is limited. What does this article add to our knowledge? Patients with secondary and severe primary predominant antibody deficiency, characterized by low B cells, low T helper cells, and or low class-switched memory B cells, had low antibody response to SARS-CoV-2 immunization which improved after additional dose vaccination. How does this study impact current management guidelines? These data identify patient factors associated with low response to SARS-CoV-2 vaccination and support recommendations regarding additional doses of COVID-19 vaccines in patients with moderate or severe forms of immune deficiency. The last article is Exposure to Allergen-Specific Immunotherapy in Pregnancy and Risk of Congenital Malformations and Other Adverse Pregnancy Outcomes by Mitsalu et al. What is already known about this topic? A few studies have examined the administration of allergen-specific immunotherapy, AIT, in pregnant women and report an absence of elevated risk of adverse pregnancy outcomes. However, earlier studies were small, and guidelines continue to recommend against initiating AIT during pregnancy. What does this article add to our knowledge? In this nationwide population-based study, we compared 743 pregnancies exposed to AIT and more than 900,000 pregnancies without a record of AIT. We found no association between AIT and pregnancy and congenital malformations or other adverse pregnancy outcomes. How does this study impact current management guidelines? We believe these findings will help both physicians and pregnant women 
make informed decisions about AIT in pregnancy. Thank you for listening to the highlights of the June 2022 issue of the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology in Practice. This is Michael Schatz, and I hope you find this issue beneficial for you and your patients.